BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The following is a reissue of a show we recorded in 2014 about a very strange artifact from ancient Egypt, which you can find behind the Metropolitan Museum of Art in Central Park, the obelisk popularly known as Cleopatra's Needle. Now, in a few months, we'll celebrate the 140th anniversary of the placement of this artifact within Central Park during a very, very unusual ceremony. Now, this show will tie directly into a brand new episode that Tom and I will bring you next week. And stay tuned until the end of this episode, where I'll have a newly recorded segment about another relic from the ancient world that is also situated in a New York City park, a remnant of the Temple of Artemis from the ancient city of Jirash, now sitting in the borough of Queens. Enjoy the show. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And tonight we have the most bizarre tale, a tale of the oldest man-made outdoor artifact that's currently standing in New York City. It is... Wait a second, can we break that down? The oldest man-made artifact. That's currently outdoors, meaning that not inside of a museum or collection. Gotcha, And, and also not a piece of nature. Right. And the object holding that distinction is Cleopatra's needle. The ancient Egyptian obelisk that currently sits in Central Park behind the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Now, it's not unusual for us on the show to go back to the days of Peter Stuyvesant and Dutch New Amsterdam, but this time we're going way back. The to furthest the f- we've ever been. To the pharaohs of ancient Egypt. We're going to go far and wide with this one, and it's really a story about an outdated idea, which is going to another country and taking one of their prized possessions for your own personal acclaim and reward. Now, to tell this story, we'll have to explain the forces behind the retrieval of the obelisk we call Cleopatra's Needle, the almost kitschy spirit of Egyptomania, of the love of Egyptian culture, of what we knew about it in the 19th century, and also to talk a little bit about the secret organization that played a hand in acquiring it. That would be the mysterious Freemasons. So without further ado, join us as we decipher Cleopatra's Needle.
so we're speaking quite literally about an ancient Egyptian obelisk that today sits in Central Park behind the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The obelisk is located on a small hill called Greywacky Knoll, which is just west of the park drive. So the East Drive is what it's called right there, where the runners and joggers and everybody on bicycles goes by. Now, this gets a little bit confusing because there are actually four obelisks in the story. Um, and they're all sort of referred to as Cleopatra's <laughs> needles. This sounds a little bit silly also because the obelisks weren't commissioned by Cleopatra. Uh, they weren't built for her. They were, in fact, about 1,500 years old when Cleopatra was the queen of Egypt. So she saw the obelisks. <laughs> but very but, little to do with them overall. Right. They were These were created, they were quarried and carved out under the rule of the great pharaohs of Egypt. So we'll be talking about these three ob- obelisks, not four, because one of them is still in Egypt. Okay. One of them is in Paris, dates back to about 1200 BC. Then we have the London obelisk and the New York obelisk. They are twins, and they were made around 1450 under the reign of Thutmose the Third. In terms of situating us with Cleopatra's needle, she is she's a heavy girl, 250 <laughs> tons of oh granite, uh-huh. stands 68 feet tall, 10 inches, so almost 69 feet tall. That's about seven stories tall. She's carved out of a single piece of red granite and sits on a 50-ton pedestal. The thing to remember as we go through the story is the size of a seven-story building. Right. In an era where most buildings in New York were smaller than that, right? right. Were, were the same size or smaller. The other very important thing to, to mention about Cleopatra's needle is that all four sides of the needle contain hieroglyphics that were added by the ruler, Thutmose III, and then later embellished by Ramsay II 300 years later. And do we know for sure like what they say on each side? We, we kind of do, right? Yes, they have been deciphered today. Would you like to hear a little bit of, of what they say? They're mostly sort of tributes to the great leaders, including Tut. Okay, well, just a little bit, but the last time that I heard someone read Egyptian hieroglyphics, I just I don't want something creepy coming out of the closet right mm-hmm. over there. So, like a mummy of any kind, so be careful. Quote, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Menhipera, that's Thutmose III's real name, mm-hmm. the golden Horus, content with victory, who smiteth the rulers of the nations, hundreds of thousands, inasmuch as Father Ra, the sun god, hath ordered unto him victory against every head. So, noble proclamations, basically, on each side. Right. Uh, trumpeting their victories. And this is the same on all four sides of this thing that is sitting on this pedestal way at the top of this hill in Central Park. Kind of out of place, except that it's been there for over 130 years. Right. And yet it still feels out of place. <laughs> but but now we've we've situated that. But in, in the build-up to this, I think that you mentioned another subject. Yeah, I mean, this, gonna, yeah, this is going to seem like it's, I'm taking a detour, but the organization that I'm about to discuss plays a major role in the acquisition of this artifact. This is, of course, the Freemasons. They've been in the background of most modern Western world history, especially here in America. That's a pretty big the, statement. In the bedrock of the foundations of America. Yes, it's true. This is this this fact this is not conspiratorial. Now, you know, we all know a little bit, of course, from Tom Hanks Dan Brown movies, but I want to strip away the mystery a little bit of this. I, I in fact one really unmysterious way to think of them is as a fraternity or a brotherhood that vows to assist one another in whatever daily life activities, you know, across a variety of occupations and crafts. 
to totally demystify them, do you know the Shriners with the little yes. fezzes and the little cars? Yes. They are Masons. They, to be a Shriner, you have to be a Mason. Uh-huh. Rather, it's an appendant body of the Freemasons. So they are a fraternal organization. Yes. The original Masons trace themselves to society of medieval stone masons, mm-hmm. actual workers of stone. A lot of their symbolism and their signs and everything is are stonemason tools, the square and the compass and the trowel and the level and the plum. Like a regular fraternity, they're chosen by other existing masons and are initiated in various secret ceremonies. So these were men who were constructing buildings out of stone. It started off that way, but within 200, 300 years, that particular occupational connection got lost. However, it plays a very crucial role to this story. I was reading that they were often the ones who were doing the facades of the cathedrals and cutting those intricate facades, and this was really laborious work and took many, many years. That also meant that they had to set up little spots to eat their meals together and take naps and Mm -hmm. things like that. So they called those spots for these masons their lodges. Well, New York's Masonic Lodge currently... Right, the name seems to hold over. Yeah, the current chapter uh, has an ornate Grand Lodge over on 23rd and 6th Avenue. Now, if you ever get a chance, please take a tour of this place. It's a spectacular building, and it's also very strange. There's lots of ritual rooms. New York has had Masonic Lodges since even before the Revolutionary War. The oldest one is called St. John's Lodge. In 1758 was the first reference to a procession of Masons that marched through the streets to Trinity Church. So if they're marching in the streets, they're not secretive. They're not necessarily secretive at first. You know, there's also a lot of other organizations. For instance, the Tammany Society, which later became Tammany Hall, was also a similar kind of organization. However, they went to politics. Masons are specifically vowed not to talk about politics or religion. Some of this country's founding fathers are avowed Freemasons, including Benjamin Franklin, Paul Revere, and of course, the best known, George Washington himself, who was sworn into office on Wall Street using a Bible from St. John's Lodge. And it was Robert Livingston who gave the oath to Washington. He was the Grand Master of a lodge. So here at the very heart of the birth of the nation were two Freemasons using a Freemason Bible. So this all sounds on the up and up. I'm not understanding why then we've injected this sense of like mystery or mysticism into this. Part of it has to do with this close relation to the formation of the United States and the perceived notion of being an invisible hand in all these other, Uh from finance to politics. There's this unsettling idea of a secret organization fueling the ideals of American democracy. You know, perhaps something even non-religious even unholy in nature. Even back in 1758, that first newspaper mention, it was remarked, quote, whether the performance of public and private acts of beneficence, such as feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, be most correspondent to the genius of Christianity or to the institution of the Prince of Darkness. Prince of Darkness. Even back then, there was this notion of like, well, all this goodwill, all these good things that they're doing, is is there an ulterior motive? In the late 1830s, it actually culminated in a political party called the Anti-Masonic Party. It was formed when people thought Masons were actually murdering people for spilling some of their secrets. It was actually a specific event, the murder of William Morgan in 1826, a man we might call a Freemason whistleblower today. 
because of this connection with Washington and other historic figures, people believe Mason's Mason symbolism is embedded within various American icons, you know, like the dollar bill right. and the Washington Monument. But there is something rather unsettling, isn't there, about all of these really important Americans belonging to a secretive society? Well, yeah, a society There's with There's certainly secret... no transparency here. They have secret handshakes. They have passwords for various functions. You know, part of this mystery of ritual and claiming of arcane symbols is a part of their way of communicating with each other. And so, naturally, they would then think, at least in the early days here, try to trace themselves to ancient cultures, Mm -hmm. especially those cultures that, say, use runic or unfathomable symbols like hieroglyphics, esoteric signatures such as what the Egyptians did. And the Egyptians, not for nothing, were masters of stone. Many Masons traced their philosophies to ancient Egypt, to rituals of, in particular, their rituals of death and burial practices are often very similar to Egyptians. This is an intriguing scavenger hunt for you. Go to one of any of these old cemeteries, like Greenwood or Woodlawn or anything like that, with an express purpose of looking and locating the Freemason logo on tombstones and mausoleums. You'll see it all over the place once you start looking for it, and it can be a little bit unsettling. Mm -hmm. But yes, so they have burial rituals that are similar or inspired by those of Egypt. But in the 19th century here, it's not just the Masons who are intrigued by the notion of Egypt, because we learn more information about this heretofore hidden culture. People all over the world are becoming more fascinated with it. In fact, all of the world's great cities were looking for some kind of a line to the great empires of the past. The Roman, the Greek, and of course the Egyptian and other kinds. Yes, so why don't we take this time then just to fall back again, if you wouldn't mind, to this period where all of these needles are being constructed (laughs) or they're being mined and carved and everything. Back to basics, back to when they're first being chiseled by the original stonemasons. Yes, back to about... 1450 BC. Can you fathom that? (laughs) The pharaoh Tutmos III, who was Egypt's great ruler, conquered hundreds of cities, reigned for 54 years, and he constructed all of these great buildings, including these obelisks, all over his empire. To celebrate his 30th year of ruling, he ordered these two obelisks, of which New York today has one, One. Mm -hmm. to be constructed to (laughs) flank the entry of his son temple, which was in Heliopolis, near today's Cairo. Okay. Thousands of workers went down to the quarry and they chiseled this out. This is one solid piece of granite. It's enormous. And it stood for about a thousand years. Just this glorious testament to his power. Wait, so 14... 50 BC, right. and so it's standing for at least a thousand years, About right? a th- Well, the Persian oh. invaders came in 525 BC, okay? So about a thousand years later, the obelisks tumble, and they fall into the sand. They would be buried for another 500 years. <laughs> Wait, They'd just so, be laying around. So I am way out of my comfort zone here. What? Okay. So we are now at AD now? If we're, so it was... Almost. Okay. We're at 12 BC. When Caesar Augustus is passing through town... He's now, Caesar Augustus is in charge of the Roman Empire, which now includes Egypt. Under Augustus, these obelisks were brought up to Alexandria and set up inside a temple that's devoted to Caesar called the Caesar Caesarium. Caesar's palace? <laughs> oh, jackpot. No, um, Caesarium, a temple okay. devoted to Caesar that had been built by Cleopatra. 
wait a minute. How did they move them? These were these are immense objects, right. and we're talking they moved two thousand yeah. or two thousand years ago. Right, and this is very interesting because. In all the books and the research that we did for this show, so much of the story is around how to move these really heavy obelisks. And it's really, really hard to do. And it was hard to do in the 19th century. So how did they do it 19 centuries beforehand? Right. And that's the amazing thing about, A, the Egyptians who built the things, right, three and a half thousand years ago. And how did they get them up in the first place? And then... 2,000 years ago from right now, how did the Romans move them again? And the answer is, we don't really know. We lost a lot of that knowledge. These engineering secrets right. are gone. Now, we could really go down this rabbit hole because it sounds fascinating, but we'll save that for Bowery Boys International yes. for whenever that happens. Right. And BBI. But let's get to our obelisk and where it's at, say, 19th century. Right. And to talk about that, we have to briefly mention Napoleon Bonaparte. Mm-hmm who basically invades Egypt in 1798 with his forces. They'd kick out the rulers and the English who were there. He also brought along with him, very importantly, 150 savants. So these were really educated people, architects, engineers, scholars, who would study all of the great things, the great sites and the great treasures of Egypt. So they were studying how buildings were constructed, how they were decorated. They explored temples and tombs and looked at mummies and looked at old zodiac signs. They copied oh. it all down meticulously and reported back to the homeland, which then got published in the press and in the magazines and things. And it started this craze that we're talking about. Which we're calling today. Which we're calling right. Egyptomania, where suddenly it was all the rage because it was this new treasure trove that was coming back from this far off exotic land. So besides just these obelisks, you also have temples and you have pyramids. Pyramids, right. And Sphinx. so suddenly these would show up in women's jewelry. They might show up on cigar boxes, in advertisements all over the place. And then I guess probably more dramatically in architecture. In itself, yes. In New York City, there would be the prisons, the tombs built. There would be the Croton Reservoir that would be built in the 1840s with an Egyptian design. I mean, even today, you'll find a lot of buildings from the 19th century that will have a little bit of like a faux Egyptian flourish to it of what we knew copying the styles of these old buildings or what we thought they looked like back in the day. And many of this can be traced right back to Napoleon Bonaparte's scholars that he brought over that were reporting back and the press just started going wild for it. So the fever for the flavor of Egyptian started <laughs> in the 19th century. Right. When people start walking like an Egyptian, they start... <laughs> Smoking like an <laughs> Egyptian. Let's just say that Napoleon doesn't last too long there. The, the French and English battle it out for control. In exchange, they both wind up with an obelisk mm -hmm. and, and the ability to take one home to their respective capitals. The French took theirs back in 1833. And the French had the one from Luxor, right? Right. You, which you had said earlier, because the, the, the London one and the New York one are from Alexandria. So I just wanted to clarify that right now. Right. Okay. And so the Luxor one makes it to Paris and sits outside, st stuck on a boat at the Place de la Concorde, waiting for a plan to erect it, which it was in October of 1836, a big ceremony, 200,000 people. So October of 1836 and Paris has its obelisk. Now, the English had been offered theirs at the same time, 
but they balked at the price of how much it was going to cost them to transport it. So this this drama went on for decades. Finally, in 1877, they devised a clever plan to go down with the boat and basically pull it back, tug it back, by encasing their obelisk in its own caisson. So basically building a cask it's around like, it's it. It's like a, a weird cylinder. And then they tugged it all the way back, or that was the plan, to tug it all the way back up to London. They were just tugging their obelisk along up off the coast of southwest France. They hit a massive storm. They lost control of their obelisk. A lifeboat was lowered with six volunteer sailors to go back and try to regain control of their obelisk. Unfortunately, tragically, they were lost at sea along with their obelisk. Curiously, the obelisk was found floating around. How, I mean, yeah, where, just, where did it actually end up? Given that there is an obelisk in London today, right, we know that something happened. Well, in fact, four days later, a Spanish ship happened upon this floating obelisk. They brought the obelisk back up to London and demanded a hefty ransom uh, for its release, which they got after a little negotiation. And it would be erected in 1878 on the banks of the River Thames. So now we have Paris and we have London with their obelisks. 1878, New York, which is exploding in size and importance and it's fueled by the immigration and industrial revolution. What's up? Where's its obelisk? Well, after all this heartache, all these dramatic tales of getting respective obelisks all around the world, New York would finally get one, and it would be one of the weirdest adventures that an object has ever taken to get to New York City, the strangest tourist in history. We will reveal that story after the break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists 
both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. In 1870, in a townhouse at 681 Fifth Avenue, debuted the collection borrowed from that of many wealthy families in New York, the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. By March of 1880, they would move to their permanent home in Central Park on 5th Avenue and 82nd Street. Okay, so that's March of 1880. This is the same year that the cornerstone would be laid for Cleopatra's Needle. So as we hear the tale of how New York got its obelisk, New York is also getting its first big major art museum. Like, they're at the same time. The acquisition of New York's obelisk was the passion of a great many wealthy men of the period, but the particular passion of one man that we're going to dig a little deeper here with, Colonel Henry Honeychurch Gorringe. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a mouthful. A man with a very intriguing biography. As a boy, he actually survived a shipwreck and was found along the coast of India amongst the other survivors on the shipwreck. As a boy, he moved to America, served in the Union Army during the Civil War. In the 1870s, Gorringe worked for the U.S. Hydrographic Office. Now, have you heard of hydrographics? It sounds vaguely water-related. Well, we don't have we don't have this as a, as a separate governmental Office. department, mm-hmm. um, but it's basically the survey of coastlines and the creation of nautical charts, because this is an era yeah. of one of the last great seafaring centuries here. So Gorringe knew his seas. Yes. He was also a Freemason. Uh-huh. Now, he had many adventures at sea during this time. At one point, he thought he had actually found Atlantis. Tom, I don't know if you saw that. As we're talking ancient civilizations here. Well, that would go way back. <laughs> Even further back. Don't get me started. No, no. <laughs> In the mid-1870s, while in Alexandria, he first cast his eyes for the first time on the very obelisk that would become New York's own obelisk. And so a passion was born here. So Gorringe actually saw New York's Cleopatra's Needle over in Egypt before he knew that he would be involved in transporting right, the so, But it's, it's also where he started developing the ideas of how to transport it. Mm-hmm. Now, meanwhile, as you had inferred with France and England having their own obelisks here, well, of course... New York has to have one because, of course, we have to emulate the Europeans, and we're also a world-class city. We need to be on that same level 
One newspaper quipped, quote, It would be absurd for the people of any great city to hope to be happy without an Egyptian obelisk. Rome has had them this great while, and so has Constantinople. Paris has one. London has one. If New York was without one, all those great sites might point the finger of scorn at us and intimate that we could never rise to any real moral grandeur until we had our obelisk. Moral grandeur. These were the days when they knew how to write an editorial. (laughs) So in New York... But they had a point, right? They kind of did have a point. I mean, at least in context here. (laughs) Great. So New York wants one, but what does it do about it? How Do do you just reach out to Egypt and ask for an obelisk? Well, the U.S. consul to Egypt, a man named Albert Farman, managed through continued pressure to convince the Egyptian Khedive who was in power at the time, to offer up the remaining obelisk here. Egypt, the country in the mid-19th century, they were broke Mm. during this period. They're under a turbulent fear of government overthrow and all its political machinations by rivals. So they want to build up their treasure chest here. And here they have all of these rare items of a different religion, by the Mm way, that all of these foreign countries are desiring and are things that they need for status symbol. Interestingly, neither France or England wanted us to have one. They were actually were now all of a sudden concerned about too many obelisks flying out of the country. All of a sudden, they were concerned about preservation and heritage. So, here. so England and France are lobbying Egypt to not let go of their obelisks. But we did, in fact, get permission to have one released to the United States. Um, granted, interestingly, not to the U.S., but specifically to the city of New York. Because it turns out that a gift like that, if it was granted to the U.S., would have to go through Congress, which would start all kinds of political debate about who should get this amazing gift from Egypt, where it should be placed, and how to pay for it and everything. So I think they pulled some strings and just had it directly gifted to New York City. Congress in a log jam. It's like, it's who can imagine such a thing? Can you imagine where that obelisk could have wound up? (laughs) Well, I mean, Washington, D.C. had to build their own. (laughs) That's right. Well, they had already built it. They built their own, right. Now, back in New York, all they needed to do now was raise the money to develop a site in which they can erect our own Cleopatra's Needle. This can be a very difficult thing, though, because around this very same time, I mean, we're all we're talking such a lot of incredibly historical things happening in such a small number of years. At this time, the torch of the Statue of Liberty is actually standing in Madison Square Park because mm. they're trying to raise trying to money raise money for that. To, and, then, and that took years and years. So that can be a very difficult thing, especially for something even perhaps a little stranger than an obelisk. This might have been a very improbable task if not for a very wealthy gentleman, William Vanderbilt, who stepped in and donated $100,000 to the cause, which was just enough money for them to start the proceedings to get this thing over to the United States. Vanderbilt, by the way, a Freemason. Oh, I I feel like this is a new thing for you now. You're just going to be pointing out in every subsequent show the number of Freemasons. Bronson Pinchot, Perfect Strangers, a Freemason. No. Yes. 
Are I you know, serious? I know a whole... I, I love Is that Belky? Yes. He was a Freemason? Yes. Back to the show, Tom. Now, Vanderbilt helped locate a spot in which to erect the obelisk here, one of the highest spots in Central Park. The park only opened in 1873. It was a very fresh park. It was very new. And this knoll, this gray whack knoll, was a, a very high point in the park in particular. But wait a second. Why did they need to have it on a high point? Because... Thinking that New York City was going to be this massive metropolis with right, very, which... very tall buildings, they didn't want this thing to get lost. But there may be a more mysterious reason for the location, which I'll bring up later. They solicited applications from people of how to get the thing over. It's an incredible task, actually. Because it's the heaviest thing anybody's attempted to move on a ship across a great ocean. The man that I had mentioned just earlier, Gorringe, he was the man with the plan. He received the commission in August of 1879. Now, he had a variety of motivations. We've talked about the passion, the love of history, of obviously the fame behind this kind mm-hmm. of thing, because you do get a lot of press. But there's also another motivation which I find very interesting. When Gorringe would later study the obelisk, he would discover what he believed at the time to be Masonic symbols written many, many, many centuries ago. Masonic symbols that were inscribed onto the obelisk and around the obelisk. Freemasons from the past sending messages to future Masons. So it became an imperative for him to get this to the Western world and get these messages out to the modern Masons. As a brother, he had this duty to bring it back to the new land. Gorringe constructed a long wooden box, kind of like a crate, to hold this obelisk that needed to come back to New York, and he would lower ever so gently with all kinds of supporting contraptions, and now with hydraulic jacks, which certainly came in handy, uh, the obelisk into the crate, but now how to move it, because he's got the world's heaviest crate that's lying (laughs) on the ground. Literally, the world's world's heaviest heaviest crate. crate. Right. So he built a kind of track out of balls. If you can imagine, you know, when you see like you're walking by a deli and they've got the hatch open going downstairs, sure. you know, mm-hmm. and they've got one of those contraptions. It's like a conveyor, a shoot, a conveyor. Mm-hmm. Right. And it has a bunch of spinning wheels on it. Mm-hmm. So you can put a box on it and send it straight down. So it's these balls, these mm-hmm. rotating balls. Then He needed that are sort really of... big balls. Okay. And and he had them. He had cannonballs. Uh-huh. So he, he lined his track with these cannonballs. I can't imagine that the Egyptians were very happy at this point, having seen yet another priceless artifact leaving their country. Right, in a crate. No, they were, of course, at this point, they were protesting. So it wasn't just the French and the English who were protesting. Now Egyptians were were also protesting. They were writing editorials in the paper. They were demonstrating on the site. There was an Italian man who came forward who claimed that he owned the land on which the obelisk was had, had been situated for thousands of years. And so Gorringe basically was just stubborn and persistent. He wouldn't back off. He threatened to sue the guy. And he pushed forward with his plan to take this obelisk back to New York. So what kind of vessel? Because last time we had this like weird floating cylinder that ended up getting like shipwrecked <laughs> yeah. or whatever somewhere. Right. Now, for this, he would need something new to hold the actual obelisk. But he took his giant crate and he purchased a decommissioned Egyptian postal ship and kind of cleaned it out and strengthened the hull of so, the ship. And so then, it wouldn't fall into the sea, right. So it, And it would actually help stabilize the boat. So the obelisk is on the boat and they're ready to head out 
over the ocean. Well, don't forget that they also have to get, not to be a bore, but there's more than just the obelisk. You've got the pedestal that it sits on, and then you also have these stairs leading up to the mm. pedestal. So mm-hmm. you have this whole little shebang. So he left Alexandria with his precious cargo on June 12th, 1880. And, you know... I would like to say that it was a smooth, smooth sail. And it was, for the most part. <laughs> really? Yeah, I mean, at this point That's in so the story, <laughs> don't you expect there to be terrible troubles at sea? There were a couple things yeah. here and there, but there was nothing like the situation with the English. On July 19th, they were met by a pilot boat off of New York, and they, were, they anchored for the night just off a of fire island. The next day, they're escorted to Staten Island to a quarantine station where they're kind of checked, you know, for lice and fleas and whatever. And then they're taken up the Hudson to dock at 23rd Street. And because they're now in New York, they're already a hit. They're they're just docked with this thing, this obelisk. And they already have 1,700 people a day coming to board the boat and just oh, look at oh, it. Oh, yeah, Curiosity well, sure. seekers. I mean, this would be and still is, of course, the oldest object that many people would see. And had just arrived. Yeah. It's a piece of the ancient world arriving in New York. And, and now they had to get it to this spot in Central Park. Well, they'd take out the pedestal first, but they wouldn't want to do it at... 23rd Street because they're too far downtown. So they they continue up to 51st Street. They dock it there. They had a nice crane. I mean, now we're in New York and they have things like cranes to to sort of <laughs> to offload assist, right. this pedestal. But that was already hard enough. It, it weighed 50 tons and it took 32 horses to pull this thing through the streets. It was so heavy, in fact, the carriage wheels were digging into the soft pavement as it went along 51st Street. The pedestal. The pedestal. Just the pedestal. <laughs> okay. It only weighed 50 tons. So obviously the city was in a frenzy because this, like, almost like a spaceship had landed. So we've got the pedestal up at Central Park. We have the city in a frenzy. We don't have the obelisk up there yet, but they want to dedicate the space. Well, in particular, the Masons want to. Right. Uh, so The cornerstone. The cornerstone, you know, being Masons, of course they want to have their own rituals placed upon this. So on October 9th of 1880, an incredibly curious parade, and New York has had a lot of curious parades. Some of which we have marched in. (laughs) On this day, on October 9th, there was a grand parade of Masons, over 9,000 Masons, and members of the Knights Templar marched up Fifth Avenue, up to Central Park, up at the spot where the cornerstone was to be set. Many of them in black clothes, high hats, white gloves, and aprons. Oh, aprons. Yes. In case they had to cook? Well, this, you know, for stone, it's a ceremonial, to get the stone bits, the dust on you. Yes, of course. So in this grand ceremony, they employed all the tools of masonry in setting the stone here. This is from actual newspaper sources. Quote, poured a quantity of grain onto the stone, the emblem of plenty, the Grand Senior Warden poured on wine, the emblem of joy and gladness. The Junior Warden poured on oil, the emblem of peace. On each side of the stone, the Grand Marshal of the Masons said, In the name of the Grand Lodge of the State of New York, I now proclaim the cornerstone of this obelisk, known as Cleopatra's Needle, duly laid in ample form. He then repeated that, Three different times on each side of the obelisk, because <laughs> it's not weird right. enough already. Right. And then thousands of masons then clap their hands three times. And if that wasn't enough, after all this clapping and cheering, the Grand Master 
Anthony got up to speak and he told this whole long story about the Egyptians and and about the pyramids and even about how they could see the future, some kind of crazy stuff. Then he gets to the clincher in which he's expected to speak to the crowd that's assembled about this now very firmly established link between the obelisk and the Freemasons. And what but, Do you but, have a quote? Well, from the New York Times, reporting this very event, quote, The most remarkable part of the Grand Master's address was that in which he disclaimed any Masonic origin for the hieroglyphics found upon the obelisk, and that this was a part of his oration coming from such high Masonic authority that could not have been edifying to those persons who have found, as they profess to believe, evidences of the existence of the Masonic order at the time this obelisk was first erected. So essentially, he basically disavowed that these were Masonic base, that they were just sort of coincidentally Masonic looking. And he added further that there were no Freemasons in ancient Egypt. The response was, I'm assuming, crickets. And to think that this whole ceremony is taking place atop these same steps, meticulously brought back from Egypt and reassembled in New York Central Park, only to be told <laughs> that there is no connection. There's no connection to the Freemasons. Yeah, so how did the obelisk itself get, yeah, get it's to not the even, site? Right. It's not even here yet. Given the slope of the city streets, they moved the boat with the obelisk up to 96th Street to a dock, so they floated the obelisk by putting pontoons underneath it, which I find really <laughs> oh, wow. fascinating. They just kind of sailed it or pulled it up, <laughs> pulled it up. They floated it up the Hudson like it was a catamaran mm -hmm. to 96th Street. They dock it, and then they have to figure out how to get it across 96th Street and to its place in Central Park. Well, because it was so heavy, they, they realized that the only thing they could do was build their own little mini railway. A railway? Yeah, that's perhaps a little misleading. I'm sorry. It's they, they put it on tracks, and then they would put the tracks continuously in front of it so they could snap off the pieces in the back and put it in the front. Imagine you have like a toy railroad set, and you just have yeah. a couple pieces of the track. It literally is like you, a toy railroad track. Right, right. and you have okay. a little car with an obelisk on it, and you can only <laughs> go a little bit at a time, and then you have to take the piece at the back and put it in the front. So they were doing that. At a slowly, of very like slowly. a block a day, right? It took 40 days to move this thing. The, the most perilous moment was when they had to cross the actual railroad tracks of the Hudson River Railway, which was going down the Hudson River right there. Mm -hmm. However, since this whole thing was funded by William Vanderbilt, the Hudson River Railroad was also a Vanderbilt property. It, he owned the railway, so he could stop the trains in time for them to get the obelisk over his tracks. How convenient. Well, by January 5th, they finally made it to the knoll. It was ready to be lowered. But it's funny to think it was be before the ceremony. You've got this obelisk and it was hanging above the pedestal. It was kept horizontal in the air before it was lowered onto the pedestal. And Gorringe was going to come in, you know, and he would be the one to lower it in the big ceremony on January 22nd, 1881. I mean, he was going to be the man. He was a little bit nervous that this wasn't going to go exactly according to his plan. He had done all the calculations, but what if he was a little bit off? What if he lowered it and it wasn't really on, on the pedestal? You know, what was going to happen? So he snuck in with some of his cronies, engineers, 
On the night of January 20th at midnight, they snuck into Central Park and they went up and they actually did a test drive rehearsal, a secret rehearsal, <laughs> where they lowered it down and they, they lowered it just enough to see that all was going to be okay. And in fact, on January 22nd, thousands gathered around for the ceremony on a freezing winter's day when the obelisk was lowered in place into the position that it remains in today. Interestingly enough, you know, given that this was the 1880s, there was almost immediate criticism of its placement, or more exactly, how do you preserve an ancient monument, something that's this old, when it sits in one of the world's biggest cities? Keep in mind, it was not actually in great shape to begin with. We didn't get the first obelisk, we got mm. the second obelisk. We got sloppy seconds. Even in 1891, critics observed, quote, The abrasions caused by the sand of the Libyan desert has effaced almost every hieroglyphic on the side of the obelisk. So they tried various preservation techniques. One of them may have actually done more damage uh, when in 1885 they coated the thing in paraffin, mm -hmm. which just sounds okay. But in doing so, they chipped away almost 700 pounds of granite in cleaning it and like, you know, like chiseling out a little bit, thinking they were doing a good thing. But 700 pounds worth of rock was left over. Oh, my God. They, like, exfoliated it. <laughs> yes, like a serious... And took off a lot of hieroglyphics. Yes, but I'm sure it looked a lot younger afterwards. Now, this was such a popular tourist attraction. It had a great reputation. That Egyptomania that we've been talking about, it does not really abate. At the start of the 20th century, in a huge burst of, of interest, perhaps the greatest surge of interest happened in 1922 when news of the English archaeologist Howard Carter and his discovery of the tomb of King Tutankhamun. Displacement of Cleopatra's Needle near the Met, I think, had an encouraging effect on the Met's collection, directly or indirectly. And they soon funded excavations to Egyptian sites themselves from 1906 to 1936. Today, the Met's Egyptian collection is extraordinary. I mean, it's it's spectacular. In the 1960s, of course, they acquired the Temple of Dendur. It opened in the Met in the Sackler Wing in 1978. Now, there have been very recent controversies. We're going up to present day today with Cleopatra's Needle, which has sat there low these many decades, but has been still very weathered. In 2011, the Needle was visited by the Minister of Egypt's Supreme Council of Antiquities, who accused New York of actually neglecting Cleopatra's Needle. He wrote a scathing letter that said, quote, if the Central Park Conservancy and the city of New York cannot properly care for the obelisk, I will take the necessary steps to bring this precious artifact home and save it from ruin. So obviously they needed to do something. So as we speak, as we record right now, it is surrounded in scaffolding and is being cleaned in a half a million dollar renovation using lasers, right. which I assume are a lot better than paraffin and chipping away. Exfoliating. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like we're wrapping up the show, Greg. Um, but before we go, I think that when we were discussing its placement in Central Park and why it was so high, you said that there might have been another reason that they went with this particular hill. Well, there's something a little unexplained, a little mysterious about it. Mm -hmm. They even noticed it as far back as 1923, I found a few newspaper articles about people who noticed that it didn't exactly align with the sun. Usually these obelisks could also double as sundials, but this wasn't quite aligned properly and peculiarly angled. 
Now, the revelation that I'm about to tell you, I have to thank Kevin Walsh from Forgotten New York, which is the granddaddy of New York sites, a wonderful website, but wrote about this very peculiar coincidence that's happened. Now, there are three true obelisks in Manhattan. There are three of them. The other two, although are newer, like or they were constructed in the 19th century, they were placed first. The first one is a monument in St. Paul's Chapel that was placed in the 1830s for an Irish lawyer um, and revolutionary named Thomas Addis Emmett. Now, the weird thing is it's in St. Paul's Chapel. So in it's the down, chapel. Well, like, down, like in the cemetery. In the sorry. cemetery. Yeah, sorry, right. in the cemetery. He's not buried there. He's actually buried in Ireland. So this seems to be an empty obelisk with just a sort of a monumental purpose, but mm-hmm. no actual... Okay, that's odd. Without a little purpose, right. The second one is in Madison Square, or actually next to Madison Square. It is the grave of General William Jenkins Worth. It's placed right next to the square at 25th and Broadway. It was placed there in 1857. So we have two obelisks. And that's still there today. And that's still there today, right in front front of the Flatiron Building. Okay, so that's the second obelisk. So we have two obelisks. The the Emmett, which was in the 1830s downtown. Mm -hmm. We have the Worth Obelisk, which is here next to Madison Square. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, in 1881, Cleopatra's Needle was placed up in Central Park. The three align in a perfect line, a perfect straight line at 29 east of north basically on the compass and they cut so Cleopatra's Needle and the Emmett's one cuts right through the Worth Obelisk now what is one block away from the Worth Obelisk wasn't that the Masonic Lodge you were talking about the Masonic Lodge is one block away from the Worth Monument is this a coincidence is this a code is it a conspiracy well we'll leave this to the theorists as we close this book of mysteries on the ancient tale of Cleopatra's Needle. We hope you enjoyed this look at Cleopatra's Needle, the oldest outdoor monument in New York City. Now, since recording this show in 2014, the scaffolding has been pulled away and a bright, shiny, fantastic looking Cleopatra's needle is there awaiting you in all its magnificence. Now, of course, there are thousands of different artifacts as old or even older than Cleopatra's needle inside museums around the city including a great collection in the Met itself, just a few yards away. In fact, the Met contains a set of Acheulean flints that are actually from the lower Paleolithic period between 300,000 and 90,000 BC, which of course makes Cleopatra's needle look like a Cabbage Patch Kid in comparison. But there's just something so surreal looking at this ancient obelisk thousands of miles from its origin. These types of objects, which predate most of our modern world, have a very specific mystery to them. You can almost imagine a world 2,000 years from now, when future beings will sweep in and pick up the obelisk once again and move it to yet another place of honor. Who knows, like the moon But there is a second object of great age sitting outside in a New York City park. The second 
oldest monument in New York. Now, it's not in a museum. It's close to one. It's close to the Queens Museum, and it's not in a private collection, but in a park that was a favored project of Robert Moses. The object is a solitary Roman column built in the year 120 AD, a part of the Temple of Artemis from the ancient city of Jerash. Uh, once stood among a chorus of whispering columns, as they called it, creating an effect in the temple which would magnify the human voice. And yet here it stands, separated from its sisters, all alone in Flushing Meadows Park in Queens. Now, how did this get there? The column was a gift of the Kingdom of Jordan for the New York World's Fair of 1964-65, presented on April 22, 1964, by the young King Hussein to none other than Robert Moses. The Jordanian Pavilion at the World's Fair was a particularly unusual addition to the unofficial and incomplete League of Nations that was to be here at the fair. Despite its almost alien appearance on the outside, curved and encrusted with gold mosaics, the pavilion was one of the most religious buildings at the fair, embodying imagery of both the Christian and Muslim faiths. Sculptural displays of the Stations of the Cross by Antonio Saura decorated the exterior, and bright stained glass windows lit up dazzlingly at night. The Dead Sea Scrolls, yes, the Dead Sea Scrolls, were displayed here, along with a replica of the Dome of the Rock, and visitors could shop at a jewelry bazaar or eat traditional Middle Eastern food in the snack shop. But despite the many artifacts of great historical provenance, the most controversial thing in this odd building were a set of newly painted murals. Some Jewish visitors to the pavilion were immediately offended by one particular mural depicting a young refugee expounding in a lengthy text about the Israeli-Palestinian situation at the Jordanian border. Quote, The strangers, once thought terror's victims, became terror's practitioners, the mural said, implicating the Israelis, although never mentioning them by name. The mural continued, but even now, to protect their gains, ill-got, as if the lands were theirs and had the right, they're threatening to disturb the Jordan's course and make the desert bloom with warriors. Organizers at the American-Israeli Pavilion wrote Robert Moses to complain, saying the murals were not in keeping with the fair's theme of peace through understanding. Moses initially rejected this request, but the mayor of New York, Robert Wagner, perhaps in an intentional slight to the former parks commissioner, promised to have the murals removed. Members of the city council even proposed a bill forcing the fair to remove the mural. The Jordanians replied that they would rather close the pavilion entirely than tear down the murals under pressure. Israeli protesters picketed the pavilion. At one point, the Jordanian flag was taken and temporarily replaced by the Israeli flag by a protester. 
Of course, as a result, the Jordanian Pavilion became hugely popular in these early days of the fair, with thousands of visitors streaming in to see what all the fuss was about. The Israeli Pavilion then unveiled its own mural as a response to the Jordanian mural. Further lawsuits and even fistfights ensued over this controversy. In the end, none of these murals were removed. What got sadly overshadowed in all of this controversy, of course, was the column of Jarash, which could have been made of plaster for all the attention it received. And yet it was one of the most valuable artifacts on display at the park. After the fair ended in 1965, the pavilions were mostly all torn down, but the column stayed behind, making the park its home now for over 55 years. Today, you can find it near the Unisphere, next to a plaque which reads, This column was presented to the New York World's Fair and the City of New York by His Majesty King Hussein of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. On the occasion of Jordan's participation in the fair, the column was received by the Honorable Robert Moses, President, New York World's Fair 1964-65 Corporation. This is one of many columns in a temple erected by the Romans in 120 AD that stood in the Roman city of Jerash, Jordan. The columns are known as the Whispering Columns of Jerash. Now, if you'd like some more information on the New York World's Fair of 1964, get on board with a Bowery Boys walking tour. Uh, our tour guide, Kyle Supley, has been doing an extraordinary job with his virtual tours where he shows off his premier World's Fair memorabilia collection and uses it to tell the story of both the 1939 fair and the 1964 fair. And now, on top of these virtual tours, he'll also be offering in-person tours as well. At last, actual walking tours have now arrived, awakened from their six-month slumber here. And not just Kyle's, but actually several other offerings will actually now be presenting in-person tours as well as virtual tours. Uh, simply go to the website BoweryBoysWalks.com for more information and a calendar of upcoming tours. And of course, all of those in-person tours are all masked up and social distanced. You'll also probably just want to bring your favorite fall sweater. For more information on this show, please check out our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where there'll be many historic images of old Cleopatra's needle. And you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Tom and I will be presenting a brand new show for you next week. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.